Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, please join me as we have a special show featuring the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy, JMFT, special issue on efficacy and effectiveness of couple and family interventions with our guest, the co-editors of this edition, Andrea Wittenborn and Kendall Holtrip of Michigan State University. This publication presents a thorough, detailed research on the efficacy of MFT, complete with 13 peer-reviewed articles, including an introduction, each of which present the state of MFT research and practice in specific areas based on the last 10 years of relevant research. This is the fourth edition of Efficacy and Effectiveness. Top researchers, systemic researchers, address these topics thoroughly offering valuable insights as well as implications for current and future practitioners in each area. It starts off with an introduction by Kendall and Andrea, and we have that discussion today. So perhaps you're like, oh, I'm a frontline clinician. I listen to the AMFT podcast to get skills you can use. Today we make the argument why, and on a practice level, on a policy level, staying up to date with the current innovations and trends in MFT and couple and family research is paramount to being a research-informed clinician. Dr. Andrea Wittenborn is a professor of human development and family studies. She also holds an appointment in the Division of Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine at Michigan State. She obtained her PhD from Purdue University under the tutelage of Doug Sprinkle and Margaret Kiley in 2007, previously served on the faculty at Virginia Tech before joining Michigan State in 2014. Her research evaluates the process and outcomes of interventions for depression, including methods for personalizing treatment. As a clinical researcher, she tests interventions that target interpersonal mechanisms for depression with the goal of decreasing depressive symptoms and enhancing close relationships. Her work has been funded by several federal agencies, such as the National Institutes of Health, as well as other state foundation and intramural awards. She's an LMFT and an AMFT-approved supervisor and has received several awards for her research and mentoring of graduate students. Dr. Kendall Holtrip is an Associate Professor of Human Development and Family Studies. She obtained her PhD from Michigan State in 2011, and before returning to her alma mater, she spent six years on the faculty of Florida State University. Dr. Holtrip's program of research focuses on parenting and parenting interventions with the goal of addressing mental health disparities by expanding the reach of evidence-based parenting interventions among underserved populations. Her research activities include adapting and implementing evidence-based interventions in community settings, as well as examining parenting practices 
and family processes to inform intervention work. She'll speak a little bit about that today. In addition to being a board member for JMFT and an advisory editor for Family Process, she is also an LMFT and an AMFT approved supervisor. I will be back after the interview. Imagine a world where in-office therapy went beyond the session and included a journey where clients' assessments, automated data-driven content, and more could be used as tools to help guide clients. Our friends at Noble are changing the way therapists do therapy. With Noble, earn passive income while offering clients a more engaging experience. Clients pay a monthly fee for Noble and gain access to between-session support through automated therapist-created roadmaps, progress assessments, and in-app messaging. Noble handles the billing for you, so you don't have to worry. Join for free at www.noble.health. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. We're talking all about the Decade in Review, a special issue of the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy. That's JAMFT efficacy and effectiveness in marriage and family therapy. And I have the co-editors with me, Andrea and Kendall. You know, we like to hear a little bit about our guests. And Andrea, you and I go way back. But how did you guys first get interested in MFT and then becoming academic MFTs? And certainly being asked to co-edit this is a, a testament of your career and your your dedication to the academic side of all things systemic therapy. So how did you get into the field to start with? Yeah, well, thanks for having us, Eli. You know, I grew up in an environment where education was not really a focus and no one in my family had earned a four-year degree. And before ninth grade, I attended a small rural school where each classroom had two grades taught by one teacher. So learning opportunities were limited. And um, this is certainly somewhere I didn't expect to be. But when I went to high school, I remember getting to choose elective courses and selecting psychology and sociology. And I really fell in love with learning in those classes. The material was just so fascinating to me. I was fascinated by the complexities of human behavior and social interactions. And I'd learned about a volunteer opportunity to accompany social workers on home visits. And I just, I witnessed families living in unimaginable conditions. And that experience really had a profound impact on my life. It, it inspired a strong drive in me to use what I was learning in those courses to then help families. And I think it really drove me into applied work. And so I convinced my family to let me attend a four-year university. I majored in psychology and worked multiple jobs, one of which was doing home visits with families for the community counseling center, which I loved. I was a beginning undergraduate using behavioral interventions to support children and families through really challenging circumstances. And, and so those experiences led me to apply to clinical psychology PhD programs, which I was accepted to, but I kept looking at the curriculum of those programs and struggling to see a path to the community-based work that I had felt so inspired to do. So I stumbled upon the MFT program at Purdue University at the last minute, and this was the PhD program in, in West Lafayette, and the curriculum there was 
really aligned with my interests and the faculty at the time, Doug Sprinkle and Margaret Kiley, Volker Thomas, Janie Long, they just developed such an incredibly stimulating learning environment. So I knew then that I'd found my academic home. After completing that PhD coursework at Purdue, I moved to Philadelphia and completed an internship with Guy Diamond, where I coordinated his clinical trial of attachment-based family therapy for depression and suicidal youth. And I had become really interested in clinical research at Purdue through my involvement with Margaret Kiley's clinical trials of emotionally focused family therapy with incarcerated youth. And that internship really allowed me to gain more intensive experience and training. And I think it really propelled my career as a clinical researcher. It was also at Philadelphia where I developed a strong interest in clinical research for outcomes for depression. I was really affected by the depressed youth that I was working with. I was working very closely with them and their families, often completing home visits, spending long hours with them. And you know, witnessing their pain had a, a pretty significant impact on me. And, and I was also at the same time intrigued intellectually by the fact that so much research was being done on depression, but it seemed that progress had kind of stalled. And um, I was just mesmerized by the complexity of depression and found myself applying a systems lens, both really understanding its etiology and, and its treatment. And so that's how I I ended up here, and we were so grateful that Steve Harris had invited us to edit this issue. Yeah, Andrea, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing your journey here. I can't believe in all these conversations that we've had over the years that we have never, you know, heard some of your story. So thanks for sharing, and definitely hear some similarities in terms of your story and a little bit um, with mine. Uh, just starting off, you know, in that clinical psychology direction and kind of finding CFT at the last moment. So. Uh, for me, the path was a little bit meandering as well. I can remember in high school really wanting to be a structural engineer. I really wanted to build bridges. Like that, that got me really excited. And then I went off to college and just kind of started exploring different interests. I got really interested in animal behavior and did a year in a marine biology lab. I'm really interesting, kind of just got me more and more exposed to science and, and to research and all that kind of all that curiosity, but I realized that my curiosity was really more focused on on human behavior. I think that there's just, there's so much intrigue there. How do we end up how we end up? How are we in the world in the ways that we are? Um, and so that drove me to, to be a psych undergrad and really kind of started diving into some of those questions. I just never felt like I had the whole picture when I thought about relationships, when I thought about myself, my behavior, I just, I, I couldn't extricate it from those relationships. And so I, I really kind of started to look for more of a, a relational explanation for those behaviors. And I just got really interested in, in couples and in, in families and not only the challenges that they're going through, but how we might be able to, to help them. Um, you know, improve their their functioning, kind of achieve those goals that they that they want to achieve. And so there I was, you know, kind of right at the end in that same place of starting to apply for graduate schools. And um, I ran across an advisor who said, yeah, you know, there's a whole field called couple and family therapy. And I actually I didn't know until that point. And I got really excited about it and applied to, to graduate school. And and there I was. And I finally felt like, you know, when we started talking about systems theory and structural family therapy experiential like I was like oh like now like this is what I'm looking for like these are these paradigms that are helping me 
explain these interactions that I've been seeing and I've been experiencing. Yeah, that's that's how I got to to CFT and a little bit different from where I started, but I mean, it, it has to be said that all these years later, I mean, sometimes I feel like we are still, I did find myself building bridges still, right? But bridges, you know, between between people, between folks in a relationship, between, between parents and children. I didn't really start off in the field, you know, interested or focused on a research career, but in graduate school, I was fortunate enough to um, be invited to work with Ruben Paracardona and some of the initial stages of the research that he was doing in the community with uh, Latino immigrant families. And so, you know, here I was trying to brush up on my Spanish skills and go into the community and uh, just meet with these families in, you know, school libraries in the basements of churches and something about just being there and connecting with them and hearing their stories and being willing to share their struggles with us and just the the connections that we made just drew this out in me and I realized like yes like this is what I want to be doing like I want to be in the community like I want to be working with families and kind of using the resources and the privilege that we have in these spaces that we're in in academia to really to make a to dif- a difference in the lives of these families yeah so I think that at that point is where I really knew like yeah I want to I want to do this I want to do CFT and I really want to do research I want to do community-based and applied intervention research I love hearing both of you and the passion of which you speak because we're talking today you know our audience is primarily uh, frontline clinicians, uh, both young and old, but sometimes like, oh, research, that's like, I'm going to skip that podcast or that's not what I'm about. But I am one of those frontline clinicians and maybe I don't have a research bone in my body, so to speak, but why is it important to be a consumer, to be able to read this edition and stay up to date with research? So let's speak to the skeptic that would primarily skip a podcast like this. Why is it important? Well, we know that clinicians who are working in the community are are really busy and that they have a lot on their plate and they might not be able to have time to, to dig into the, to the literature and to do all this reading as time goes along. And they also see such a wide variety of clients come through their, their door that, yeah, that there's just, there's so much information out there. You know, even when we think about just this last decade, 2010 to 2019, we've advanced so much in the field that we hope that this um, special is- issue does a nice job of collecting that information and integrating it and putting it into an easy to access reference so clinicians can open it up and they can say, okay, you know, right here in these pages, we see, you know, here are the interventions, not just interventions in general, but these are the, our systemic, these are our relational interventions, you know, that we specialize in as couple and family therapies, therapists, and here are the interventions, you know, that have empirical support for their effectiveness. Like we've shown that these interventions are able to help uh, youth are able to help, adults are able to help these families that we work with. And so we're hoping that it's just an easy to use, easy to access resources that can can help clinicians inform the work that they're doing. Well, Kendall and I, we spent a long time just discussing like, how can we make this the most useful tool for a variety of stakeholders, but especially clinicians. And, you know, we know that clinicians want to offer people the best services they can. They want to see people change, you know, that's why they're doing what they're doing. And it's just hard to stay on top of the evolving literature when you're managing such heavy caseloads and 
So, um, like I said, we really wrote this with clinicians in mind. We asked authors to standardize criteria for classifying the evidence base for interventions for each of the conditions that we reviewed. And they were asked to carefully review that prior decade of research, but alongside the all prior evidence on the interventions, and then classify the evidence for you know each condition. So we asked them to report this information in a way that was very clear and concise. They've included a table that summarizes the information in so that's in each article. So clinicians can just quickly access the evidence-based update for each condition. Uh, we also compiled that information for clinicians in our introductory article in JMFT, as well as an article in MFT's Family Therapy Magazine. So it's really easy for clinicians to pick up and see, okay, what is the evidence-based update for the past decade? You know, what are the most effective interventions for couples and families? You're right, because as you were mentioning, people want, frontline clinicians want easy to digest, have all the information there, and it is laid out, as you said, Andrea, in a very organized, cohesive way all throughout the volume. How do you think that we have changed, we, the MFT profession, in the last decade, since the last review? And I should say that this is the fourth such edition of efficacy and effectiveness first one by the late great Lyman Wynn and Bill Pinsoff, and uh, versions two and three um, by someone's meant a lot to Andrea and myself and our personally and professionally over our careers, the uh, late great Doug Sprinkle. How have we changed since that last edition by Doug? Yeah, well, like you said, I mean, it's the fourth special issue on the efficacy and effectiveness of couple and family therapy. It's exciting. With each decade, we've seen the sophistication of efficacy and effectiveness research increase. We've seen more and more conditions studied for specific populations. You know, the authors in this issue found well-established interventions for almost every intervention or almost every condition that was studied. I think one of the changes, one of the shifts is that we keep seeing a, a move towards focus on external validity, you know, external validity being ensuring that the designs of the studies and the results from those studies are actually relevant to existing clinical settings and to specific groups of people. You know, historically, we've seen couple and family therapists criticize, and for good reason, the limited external validity of clinical trials for couple and family interventions. And so these study designs, I think, keep taking a step towards having more external validity, being more relevant to the clinical settings that exist, you know, in the world. And so we saw those efforts being made over the past decade. It's also become apparent that some of the research has moved into, and, and you know, this issue was focused on efficacy and effectiveness findings. So we were trying to understand, you know, does do these interventions work for these conditions. Some of the research, though, has also moved into dissemination and implementation research where, you know, we're looking at uh, moving these interventions, testing how to implement them into real-world settings. And so, you know, I think that's, while it was a 
specifically addressed in this issue. It's certainly something that was uh, noticed and it's exciting and something that will need to be considered possibly in future issues. Yeah, I love that you brought up dissemination and implementation research, Andrea. And yes, although we didn't, ha- uh, we didn't focus on it within the scope of the efficacy and effectiveness issue, these ideas around like how do we take these evidence-based interventions, these empirically supported interventions, and how do we, you know, integrate them into real-world practice? And it asks such important questions just around training and sustainability, and it looks at really the systems that these interventions are operating in. And so, yeah, like, when we look toward the future and kind of what we might be able to do with future research and even perhaps in in future issues, um, I think that that's really interesting and will continue to be interesting to, to not only uh, intervention scientists, researchers, but also to therapists. You know, these are the the real contexts in in which they live. And then I think maybe another area of progress that we observed in the in this last decade. And it really is there are, really are two sides to this coin. But I think we saw a lot of progress in terms of diversity. We noticed that there were um, some topics. So, for instance, a couple relationship education where there were more diverse samples, you know, studied over this past decade than had been studied in the future. Um, oh, topics like substance abuse, which um, historically has, you know, had more diverse samples included, those trends continued. For instance, the research on ADHD increased um, inclusion of racial ethnic diversity. There was a lot of a lot more um, research with Latino youth this decade than in the past. And so we are seeing some notable progress in this area. And then the other side of this coin is, of course, that still a lot more needs needs to be done. And I think that when we kind of transition to talking about more directions for the future today, that we can really talk a lot more about the importance of, you know, continuing that and really focusing more intentional efforts on promoting DEI efforts with our research. Tenio is AAMFT's online education platform and provides clinical training with a focus on systems and relational therapies. Tenio courses are all online and can be accessed anywhere in the world. Courses can be started, paused, and completed at any time to accommodate busy mental health professionals' schedules. Tenio courses are approved by many state regulatory boards to provide continuing education credit hours and cover such diverse topics as marketing your practice, elder care, working with LGBTQ clients, and ethics. Explore the course catalog at www.aamft.org forward slash learning and use code TENEO10 for 10% off your purchase. The title, Efficacy and Effectiveness, so that the difference between efficacy and effectiveness, we know all good models or empirically supported treatments should should be both efficacious and effective but you know efficacious can it work in a very highly controlled uh, kind of laboratory setting and effective is more can it work in the real world which is tied into what you were saying andrea about external validity and that is what consumers if you're listening to this podcast will it you know work for me in my session this evening and what you were saying, Kendall, is like, yeah, right on in the sense that how we disseminate, if it's great research and it's great model, but if it's proprietary and it doesn't reach MFTs that are practicing, you know, without an affiliation to a clinical research institute or a agency setting where this model is being used, it doesn't really resonate. So these are things that dissemination, implementation, 
real world external validity very important and when i think of you know this show is a homage to the past and the future of our field and one of the things we used to really do is is show our work now showing our work was done in these live clinical demos and as our mentor used to say andrea we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. it's like we can do both i think we can still do really good clinical work that is the art of systemic therapy, but we can also have the science around it that support it, supports it. And good therapy is both art and science. So I love what you all said. You know, certainly we'll talk more about in diversity and these things that need to happen moving forward in our field. If you're not going to read it cover to cover, like I do in academic theory, you know, you may pick certain areas that is your clinical interest to read. So let's orient our listener what are the substantive areas covered in this fourth edition and andrew you were saying a little bit about the structure but what changes have you made to the structure in the content areas since the last edition that doug edited yeah so we were really excited to have authors who um, covered a wide variety of conditions we actually reorganized the issue a little bit so that each article focused on interventions across the lifespan so looking from youth to children to adulthood and so that allowed us to introduce some new topics so this issue includes the following topics infant and early childhood mental health disruptive behavior problems ADHD anxiety disorders mood disorders suicidal ideation and be a behavior, substance use disorders, traumatic event exposure, violence, couple relationship education, couple relationship distress, health conditions, and then mental health disparities in the capstone article. Um, like I said, we're able to actually address more conditions this time. And, you know, one of the things historically, a special issue has really had a focus on making it relevant to public health. I mean, this issue has focused on what are the conditions that are important to look at the evidence base for that are relevant to, you know, various stakeholder groups. It could have just reviewed evidence for specific models, for example, and that have been the focus. But there was a lot of attention paid in the past, as well as in this issue on how can we make this an issue with high relevance to public health. I tried to take that a step further in this issue as well by inviting authors to consider you know, reviewing and reporting the state of the evidence for categories of interventions instead of classifying the level of support for each individual intervention. This was something that was a little bit different. Um, so in other words, authors were asked to review the existing evidence base and construct categories of intervention based on, you know, underlying theory or a mechanism of action or other meaningful characteristics so that uh, they could discern, you know, what is the level of evidence for certain categories or types of interventions. And we think that offers greater public health benefit because it enables people to then seek out an intervention that's consistent with the well-supported, the most well-supported you know, interventions, 
even if a specific brand name intervention may not be available in the, this area, you know, this was, we want to be clear that not all interventions within a category are equal, but we think this is an important step and this is the right time to do this as our number of interventions keeps increasing and the amount of research keeps increasing. Um, like I said, we also included some new topics. I mean, the infant and early childhood mental health um, was one of the new areas, which was really exciting for us. Anxiety disorders for adults, um, suicidal ideation behavior, bipolar, traumatic event exposure. These are all really important conditions to consider. And so those are new topics for this issue. The other, I guess, addition that you know, I'm really excited about making available to stakeholders is the capstone article that addressed mental health disparities for racial and ethnic populations. I think this is just such an important article that reviews the past decade of couple and family intervention research in order to assess our progress and identify where areas where advances are still needed in order to decrease disparities. Great. Well, I'm going to give the broad overview because it's such it's such great news and it's so I think it's just so inspiring as we continue to to document the evidence that we have for um, the couple and family interventions that we use and findings over the past decade you know just continue to support to continue to support what we do that we have um, well-established family-based interventions available for youth who are experiencing a, a host of different challenges, right? Disruptive behavior problems, ADHD, anxiety, depression, bipolar, suicidal ideation and behavior, substance use, and traumatic event exposure. And then for adults, we also have well-established interventions for depression, for substance use, traumatic event exposure. We have um, interventions that are well established for couple relationship education, for couple relationship distress, and to prevent the reoccurrence of child, child maltreatment. And so as we kind of talk through all these different behavior disorders and conditions that were addressed, it's it's just really great news across the board with where our uh, where the research is in support of these interventions that we are able to deliver to to families. You know, it used to be entered the field over 20 years ago now like we all knew that mft worked and that the power of working relationally with the couples and families was where it was at but much of our couple and family research was farmed out to other disciplines uh, clinical psychology family psychology social work so i really liked seeing so many mfts represented. So how much of the research covered in this volume was actually conducted by MFTs? And do you still think, both of you who have surveyed the, the field, do you still think we have this problem that I was alluding to of farming out our research to those experts in other disciplines? I think that's a, an interesting question. I, I think interest in couple and family therapy, you know, it clearly extends beyond disciplinary lines. And, you know, our field has continued to grow over time. Um, but there have certainly been experts from other disciplines who have contributed to research on couple and family interventions. And, you know, my own impression, though, is that there are more 
couple and family therapists interested in clinical research today than have been in the past, which is something I'm really excited about. You know, faculty have a lot of freedom to determine the programmatic focus of their research. And I think the need for clinical research on couple and family interventions and specific, specifically clinical trials on theoretically based and empirically informed interventions for specific populations has really become apparent over the years. And you know, as I said, my impression is that more couple and family therapists have made a commitment to closing that research gap and are investing their time in clinical research. So many of the articles in this issue were written by authors with degrees in couple and family therapy. Um, we, you know, hope that trend will continue because it reflects a strong investment in our practice and profession, you know, from those in our own discipline. Yeah, so we're just, we're really excited about um, the potential for, you know, those in our discipline to continue to engage in um, clinical intervention research. And, you know, we think it's also a really important training and education opportunity for those of us, you know, teaching in these graduate programs to really make sure that we are equipping our students with the skills that they need, you know, the, the ability to, to understand theory and to understand conceptual frameworks and how that leads to research questions and hypotheses and then the, 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 the statistical and methodological skills to, to go out and do this, um, to do this with different populations, be prepared to do this with diverse populations in all of the varied settings in which, you know, we practice. Um, and we just think that that's an exciting challenge for the field um, to, to participate in that, in that training as well. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Kendall, too. Um, we're probably going to get far away from the topic here, so I won't stay on this for long, but the training is so important. And, you know, Kendall and I are both faculty at Michigan State University where we have classes on intervention research, so students are learning how to design studies of efficacy, effectiveness, and dissemination, implementation research. And I, you know, I hope that 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 research methods training continues to happen across programs because, you know, this is such an important area of research to really build our practice and profession. Yeah, I'll bet you all don't have to toot your own horn. I will brag on Michigan State. I think it is among uh, our most successful doctoral programs in doing just what you said. And Beside the two of you, Adrian Blow, so a faculty that is dedicated to this clinical research. We have a lot of students listening. Many will, like I said, go on to be these frontline clinicians, but some people will hear the Andrea story and the Kendall story, and they're like, their clinical experience will drive them to want to go back and to do something applied. Much like you, Andrea, I got into clinical doctoral programs, but I thought systemically and they didn't fit for me. Also, I don't think at 22 or 23 years of age, I could have made a maybe a commitment to knowing what that was until I had a more applied experience of doing therapy. So what do you all think about how we design doctoral programs because you all are innovators and leaders in doctoral training as well. We think in terms of their training as clinicians and researchers, um, and then really importantly, the integration of the two. Um, so I think in, in the past, maybe we've thought like, well, you get your clinical training in your master's program and your research training in your, in your PhD program. But I think our model here is, is more integrative than that. Like certainly 
uh, meeting students where they're at in terms of their clinical training when they enter the program, then, you know, we really do spend a lot of dedicated time, you know, continuing to hone their skills, continuing to, to move them forward in terms of their conceptualization and the skills they take into the therapy room. And at Michigan State, we're really focused on getting our students trained in some empirically supported models as well that they can integrate into their clinical work. Um, and then, of course, we have a strong focus on their research development classes and methods, classes in statistics, classes in intervention research and, and grant writing, but really with this focus of, you know, helping them to further develop, you know, what their interests really are um, and, you know, that topic area that they're interested in focusing on and then how they can, you know, move, move that issue forward in, you know, the clinical work that they're doing with families as well as in their program of research that they're developing. I mean, I feel like so many of my research questions and my hypotheses have been, you know, informed not only by the empirical literature, but man, and I'm informed by who I see in, in the room with me, the clients that I get to work with, the families that I engage with in the community as part of, you know, the applied community-based research that I do. And so I'm um, just kind of really I think fostering that, that integration of the clinical development and the research development. Um, those are, I guess, some of the ways that, that I think about our, our training here. Andrea, um, what are your thoughts? Thanks for sharing that, Kendall. I, I guess the only thing that I would just highlight from what you've already shared is I think that there's a danger in the way that it's structured and that it makes it easier for doctoral educators to think, okay, students get their, as Kendall said, their clinical training and their master's now, we're going to really prepare them to be researchers. And I think that can create issues. If we want to continue to build our practice and profession, we need to have more clinical research showing the value of our practice and profession. And that comes from, you know, having a focus on education on both clinical research as well as, you know, clinical intervention. Uh, I don't really, you see the best clinical research coming from people who also understand the interventions and, and can, you know, think about how those might be adapted and how we can study those adaptations and things of that nature. So, um, so there, there is that danger with the way it's structured. And so we've been really purposeful in our focus on developing interventionists and clinical researchers or intervention researchers and so they get advanced training in empirically supported interventions we have them actually they work towards certifications and various approaches so that they can get that training and they're applying them in the clinic alongside this training in efficacy effectiveness dissemination implementation research methods we talked about some of the advances. I'm going to give you time to talk about things that we need to, where there are existing gaps after seeing this volume composed. What do we need? Where are the gaps? How do we address them? And what do we need to do in the next 10 years when the fifth edition of Efficacy and Effectiveness comes out? What do you want to be able to say as a field we need to do to move forward even more, both to gain credibility in the larger psychological sciences and to keep 
making inroads into areas that you mentioned, like public health? What do we need to do to move the field forward from a clinical research perspective? You know, we're it's nice to stay focused on, on um, and it was such a pleasure to take stock of really how far we've come and just the amazing interventions that we have available to us and the research on that. But but there are some gaps and things that, you know, we can continue to build research in those areas over the next 10 years or so. I mean, I think this review illuminated the need for more research on adults in some areas. Um, for example, you know, we see well-established interventions for youth across most conditions, but the evidence base for adults, for example, on anxiety, bipolar, ADHD, suicidal ideation, these are areas that will need more research in the coming decade. We still need more research that goes beyond the question of does the intervention work and hones in on understanding how interventions work and you know what works for whom. We hope to see more of these studies that are assessing mediators, moderators of change in the future. You know, we have a strong history of community-based work. And so, you know, I mentioned that we have seen more research that has, you know, been in community-based settings, but I think we need to continue that, moving in that direction of increasing the external validity of our findings and really thinking about how to disseminate and implement those. We need to kind of know what a little bit more about what works for whom. So thinking about populations that we haven't addressed as much, for example, the lack of research on queer folks is extremely limited. And so we need to develop a better understanding of how to adapt interventions for in ways that can benefit queer folks, various racial ethnic groups. We need more research on health conditions. So what, that was one of the findings from the article in health conditions was that there weren't any well-established interventions that were found at this time. And so really uh, more research on interventions with family involvement for health conditions. Yeah, so many important directions for the future. And I know that Andrew and I just really appreciated the chance to kind of have some of these conversations after we reflected on what had been done in the past decade. Just to emphasize a couple, Andrew, you did such a great job of, of, of talking through them all. But I just I just want to add, um, you said, you know, talking about, you know, at mediators, moderators, kind of mechanisms of change. And of course, that's an area that I'm just really passionate about in my own research in terms of looking at active intervention components. So we take these manualized, multi-component interventions that have been studied and, you know, can often take 10, 12, 14 plus, you know, sessions to implement to families. And as we kind of think about um, ways in which to, I don't know, more kind of innovatively deliver these interventions for families who are, you know, busy, they have a lot on their plate. You know, we ask ourselves these questions, like how can we do a better job of reaching these families? How can we do a better job of, of meeting them where they're at with our empirically supported models? And so if we can do a better job of kind of looking inside these interventions and saying of all these pieces that we're of all these pieces of the intervention that we're delivering, you know, which ones are those, like, which pieces are the active ingredients, you know, which pieces are, you know, kind of giving us, you know, the most bang for our buck. If we can kind of better kind of discern what's taking place inside these interventions, then, you know, we can package them differently. We can deliver them more efficiently, more cost effectively, and, you know, through various 
different types of, of formats. So I think that, you know, that's just a, an area of research that I'm particularly excited about and I'm hoping that we see advance in this next decade. I think the other vision that we both share looking forward is this this really strong hope that we can continue these efforts to promote mental health equity by conducting couple and family intervention research, both with diverse populations, as you mentioned, Andrea, but also um, using methodology that's culturally relevant for these populations. And so we first and foremost need to intentionally include more diverse populations in our research, that's for sure. Um, But we can't stop there, that we need to make sure that our methods are culturally honoring and they're they're culturally appropriate for the populations that we're using. And so, you know, this includes things like making sure that the measures that we're using in our research have been psychometrically validated for the populations that we're studying, Um, making sure that the interventions that we're testing that we've considered, you know, are they culturally resonant with the populations that we're using them with? You know, what steps do we need to take to culturally adapt these interventions before they, you know, would be expected to, to be working and be sensitive with these different populations? We need to go beyond just including diverse groupings of populations in our our research samples and then thinking that our study findings are going to generalize to each of these diverse populations. But we need to really get in there and examine, you know, issues around differential effectiveness. I thought Lenore McWay in her article on um, traumatic event exposure really touched on this really well, just calling for more research testing differential treatment effects for the populations. In their um, article on violence, Sandy Stith and her colleagues also just presented some really important considerations talking about with IPV interventions, for instance, how it's really critical that we advance these interventions to take into account the impact of things like systemic racism, anti-gay bias, transphobia, and how those experiences are going to, you know, impact couple functioning. And so I think that there's really some areas where we can advance this research in some sophisticated ways and some really um, contextually relevant ways, integrating critical consciousness and um, intentionally promoting mental health equity for the research um, through the research that we do. You all have gotten me excited during this hour, and I hope that our listeners that may have not thought about giving a article or a whole special volume of JMFT a chance, they will. And as we come to a close here, the good thing about this for the remainder of 2022, you know, every AMFT member gets free access to our flagship journal, JMFT, the Journal of Maryland Family Therapy. And obviously, if you're a student and through your university, you library you have access to it but many of our practitioners and listen to our show that are systemic or mfts we know there's about fifty thousand mfts in the country and only about half of those are members of amft so even if you're not a member of amft or a student for the rest of 2022 you can still get access to this through open access for the rest of the year right andrea yeah that's right it's available to anyone for free for the rest of the year that's wonderful and you know there will be people listen to this they're like oh like maybe students, maybe, or people that have been practicing a while and have that itch to kind of learn about intervention research or go back to school, talk about, A, just if they want to continue the dialogue 
with the two of you all how to reach you. Tell us if, you know, if you're interested in a doctoral program or a place like Michigan State, how to kind of get more information. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think the easiest way to get more information about our program and to access our contact information is probably just on our website. That's probably the easiest way. You can probably just go ahead and Google Michigan State University Couple and Family Therapy. Um, the information about us, our contact information, research interests, kind of, you know, our mission and vision, kind of how we run this program here, they're all available and would really encourage anyone who's interested to, to go um, check it out and get in contact with us. So uh, you can contact me at holtropk at msu.edu, so H-O-L-T-R-O-P-K at msu.edu. Yes, and my email is Andrea W, so A-N-D-R-E-A-W, at msu.edu. Thank you again to Andrea Wittenborn and Kendall Holtrip. And those are two really passionate clinical researchers whose uh, clinical experience drove their research interest, and uh, they did a really excellent job of co-editing this volume. Again, I can't recommend it enough. It is available. It's open access to, to anyone. So tell your friends throughout the rest of 2022, and you can easily access it through the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy homepage, or you can go to amft.org, uh, your one-stop shop for everything systemic therapy. One of the things that Kendall and Andrea and I were talking about as we concluded our conversation that didn't make air is just another important part of a volume like this because as mfts clearly we have a vast body of knowledge supporting our work with families and you know larger system many of the principles and interventions from our body of knowledge could be utilized in public policy better so kendall wanted to put in a, a plug for another really crucial aspect of a volume like this that summarizes everything in couple and family research is it gives us a place at the table as far as other uh, stakeholders like politicians and other movers and shakers that need to understand what MFT is and the importance of couple and family interventions. So how we influence public policy as MFTs and expand our systemic scope is, is very important. We like to bring you the latest and greatest in emerging topics like what's going on in MFT clinical research. Mix that in with really important people, uh, both to the history of family therapy and to the future and in informative interviews and also uh, hot topics. We listen to you, the listener. You can get a hold of me, Eli, at NorthStarCounselingCenter.com. You can also go to elikaram.com. That's K-A-R-A-M.com. You can follow us on Twitter. The AMFT is simply at the AAMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. We'd love to hear from you. And we always appreciate a five-star review and a review left on Apple Podcasts. But you can also find us on Spotify, Google, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. We have four seasons worth of really informative episodes. I love hearing from listeners. I've been gotten a lot of suggestions recently about future guests, and I really appreciate the feedback and look forward to being with you next time. And until then, 
Stay systemic. Stay safe.